0: We will begin our reading in verse 14, and we will read through chapter 9, verse 10. Again, that is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it has happened according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the, heaven, under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead." But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I just am growing to really love this book. It is such an encouraging, challenging, um, mysterious, there's just a lot of words we could use to describe this book, but one secular philosopher said Ecclesiastes uh, is the greatest philosophical book that's ever been written, and that was by a secular professor at Notre Dame. If you're joining us this morning, welcome, we're so glad that you're here We are marching through the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the things that we value as a church is we value going through books, whole books, and going through them literally paragraph by paragraph. Because we don't believe that we have enough wisdom to sort of tell you you what we think on our own. We want to stand on the authority of God's word and let him direct and guide all that we teach as a church. So would you pray with us this morning as we begin Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness in drawing us here. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to sit before your word. We are humbled by that privilege, knowing that there are people, all kinds of people in this world, who do not have the opportunity to read this word. They do not have the Bible in their language. They do not have access to Christian preaching. And here we are, just fat, just so rich, and we're and I just pray that this morning that you would just stuff us full, and that we would walk out of here just again, totally corrected by your word, which needs to happen for us on a regular basis. so correct us, Lord, change us uh, through this time we pray in Jesus name, amen. Well, we pick up our study this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We read a rather long passage, Jason did, um, 8 all the way through 9, 10. And uh, that's intentional because really thematically, this, this whole thing is linked together. I mean, all this stuff, uh, 8, the end of 8 and 9. What he does is he sets up a problem at the end of chapter 8. It's a pretty significant problem. It's a problem that all human beings struggle with. It's, it's what is commonly known as the problem of evil. And Solomon wrestles with it. The greatest philosopher of all time, the wisest man of all time, wrestles with a problem of evil. So I'm glad that we get to kind of consult him and not some sort of self-help book or secular philosophy. We're going to go right to Solomon. We're going to see what he has to say about the problem of evil. You know the problem of evil is sometimes stated in, in popular terms as, if God is so powerful, if God is so good, then why does he allow bad things to happen to us in this world, right? Right? We've heard that. And Solomon is wrestling himself with this same issue. How could, how, could, how could we live in such a world with a good God and an all-powerful God and this evil exist? And so we find ourselves in the middle of this struggle. In fact, he says in verse 14, look at 14, there is a vanity that takes place on the earth that righteous people who get what the wicked deserve, and there are wicked people who get what the righteous deserve. The question that we ask this morning is, how can that be? Right? I mean, that's not fair. Why why would righteous people get what wicked people deserve? How is that fair? We love phrases like, fair is fair. Fair play. Common idioms that we use. But what How is that fair for the righteous to get what the wicked deserve? How can this be? Does it seem fair? We have this instinctive feeling that things ought to work out fairly for us. This week, a Christian family suffered what may be the worst tragedy that I've heard in my life. I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the Watson family. You can see on the screen there. In Muhlenberg County, just a county over. And what some of you may not know is that Chad Watson, the husband and father of this family, was college roommates with Sean Melvin. And Sean knew him well. Anyway, this godly husband and pastor went to bed on Wednesday night and little did he know that by 2 o'clock in the morning... His whole world would be shattered. His house burned down and Chad and his daughter Kylie are the only ones that made it out. Every one of the pictures that you see on the board are people who died in that fire. A huge family. His wife Nikki. And listen, eight, eight of his children died. Madison, Kenzie, Morgan, Emily, Sam, Reagan, Mark, and Nathaniel all perished in that fire. Here's what the Daily News had to say about it. The Daily News had a description of the scene. I read this. Bo Groves, who was a neighbor, listen, Bo Groves was awakened at 2 a.m. by a loud beating on his door. And when he opened it, he saw his badly burned neighbor from across the street, Chad Watson, and Watson's daughter, also badly burned, standing on his porch. Groves brought them in, and Chad Watson said, They're all gone. They're all gone. The hair on one side of Watson's head was gone, and skin was falling off. And his daughter's hands, on his daughter's hands. Watson told Groves that he tried to get back in the house. Listen to this several times to rescue his wife and the other eight children. The surviving child, eleven years old, Kylie, stood with her hands outstretched, saying she couldn't believe that they were gone. Watson walked in circles in Groves' living room his charred hands outstretched. And when rescue workers arrived at the house, they found him again with arms outstretched towards his family, commending them to God. He told an onlooker that he had been in the house three times trying to get them. He said that his family is in the hands of a loving God. Incredible. I I, I just, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around. It was Thursday morning and I'm praying with Pastor Keith and... And Matthew Brink, and, 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 I, and I just, uh, actually Matthew wasn't there, I just couldn't wrap my mind around how something so severe could happen to a Christian. I mean, I thought the worst thing I'd ever heard of was Horatio Spafford, who, who wrote the hymn, you know, It Is Well With My Soul, and he lost his children, but eight children in one go, in one fire, and a wife? And, and, and you just think about this, and they were a Christian family, and how do we handle such news? How do we deal with the apparent injustice of that? Let's be honest, that seems unjust. In a world in which wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. So in verse 14, Solomon deals with this problem of suffering. Listen, he doesn't struggle so much with the presence of suffering, but with who suffers and who doesn't. It's a slightly different angle on it. In in many ways, these verses are like the book of Job, in that it deals with the profound shortcomings of conventional wisdom... That says the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. Isn't that what we believe? We believe that the righteous aren't supposed to lose their jobs. The righteous aren't supposed to lose their homes. The righteous aren't supposed to get cancer. The righteous aren't supposed to lose their kids in tragic accidents. Isn't that how we think? Be honest, right? Because when it happens to you, you think, why did that happen to me? I've been faithful. I've been serving God. Proverbial wisdom says the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. That's general wisdom. Listen, and it's generally true. But the biblical picture is broader than that and it incorporates an equally important truth, hear me, that sometimes in life the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. Sometimes. In fact, many times. Okay, and Ecclesiastes teaches that clearly. The Bible teaches that. So these words of Solomon are are lament. It's a lament. It's Solomon is this is autobiographical. In fact, it's painfully personal. It's unsettling to read. You can feel the frustration of Solomon, and his words resonate with us. But thankfully, Solomon teaches us some really important lessons this morning about what to do when life doesn't make sense and we are tempted to disparage of life itself you just wonder why is what's the point why even live right i mean if it's going to be this severe in fact ironically here what solomon teaches us is how to find joy in the midst of disillusionment and pain and and i think this is incredible because that's why we had to go all the way through verse 10 because we got to see how he kind of solves this issue and even though solomon will not come up with a categorical solution to the problem Of pain or evil or suffering, he nevertheless gives us some advice for how to handle the world that we live in with injustice. And I see five pieces of advice, and I want to give them to you one by one. All right? And that's what we're going to do. So, verses 16 and 17, let's get right into it. What's his first piece of advice? How do we handle a world with so much injustice? Number one, here it is you can't solve God sized problems, so stop trying. that's what he says. That's the, that's the shorthand for what he says. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. Do you see what Solomon is saying? In these verses, he's saying that he made a great discovery about the nature of God's activity. He discovers that God's activity is unpredictable. You cannot know it. There is no master key that will sort of unlock the mysteries of life. Like somehow, if I just get that one key, I'll know what's going to happen in my future. Or I'll be able to fully explain my past or why this or that happened to me. We'll never be able to get to the bottom of the question. Think about it. The more Solomon tried to sort of figure this out, the more anxious he became. Look at the verse. He was up all night trying to understand God's ways. I would say if Solomon had eight days in a week, he would spend it with nine days of work. Because he couldn't figure it out. He would just keep trying. He became an insomniac. Trying. Look at his language in verse 16. Neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. So Solomon says it's utterly futile to try to understand why the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. We cannot solve God-sized problems. Now, I think there's something refreshing about that. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes just does this to us over and over. What it does is it says you can't figure it out. Okay? So stop trying. This is way bigger than you. You cannot analyze the why. You'll never get to the bottom of that. It's, all that's doing is stressing you out and messing you up emotionally. So stop. And and so Solomon says, and I got room to say that because I'm the wisest man that's ever walked the earth. So stop. Now, what we see in this life is that the work of God is mysterious. But because of that, we should be humbled before him, knowing that his ways are higher than our ways. We should be wise, that's true, but wisdom, listen, will not answer all of our questions. It just won't. We need to be content not knowing everything. A meaningful life is not dependent on finding answers to these elusive questions. You can still have a meaningful life and and just be totally ignorant about a whole lot of things. Charles Bridges put it this way. These are great words. Listen, does your heart rebel when you see the wicked prosper? Ask yourself this question. Would you change places with that man? Is he better off than you? Are his earthly blessings better than your saving grace? Is not Jesus more than silver or gold to you? Do you somehow have a lesser portion because you have Christ? Leave yourself with God and be at peace. Isn't that a good word? Well, the second piece of advice Solomon gives us is this. Rest in the fact that God is in control. That's chapter 9 verse 1. He says this, But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. What Solomon is set doing is he's consoling us. He, he's reminding us right here that the righteous in all of our deeds are in God's hands. In other words, nothing happens to us as the children of, children of God that don't first pass through God's hands. If it happens to you, it's come through God's hands first. And if it's come through God's hands first, you can trust that there's good there. Because nothing evil comes through God's hands first. Of course, Solomon has already affirmed this issue of the sovereignty of God, the unrivaled sovereignty of God, the you-can't-try-to-fight-against-it sovereignty of God, the overarching, big, strong, mega-sovereignty of God that nobody can touch. Yeah, he, he has taught that several times in this book. And God is sovereign. So, so far, so good, right? Of course, the problem is, though, when he uses a troubling phrase there in verse 1, he says, man does not know whether it will be love or hate. Both are before him. I had to stop and really wrestle with this verse this week. Trying to what does that mean? This book is so enigmatic sometimes. He's trying to, what is what's he talking about? Man does not know whether it will be love or hate. Both are before him. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that a righteous life does not keep you from trouble. This is this is profound stuff here. Listen. Even though it's true that God cares for us. And all of our work is in his hands. Nevertheless, God's sovereignty is unpredictable. And here, love and hatred are used to describe God's activity in the affairs of man. Including the righteous. Okay. This is really important. Listen, listen closely. One commentator put it this way: these love this these words, love and hate, either refer to a future that is bright or a future that is to be feared. The key is to understanding this verse is found in the phrase "both are before him." Okay, which means this: both love and hate are before us. They lie in our path. Okay, now think about this. Solomon is telling us, he's reminding us that you cannot always tell who are God's children just on the basis of what they experience in life. So like somebody's kid dies. You can't tell whether or not that person's in Christ, whether or not they're a Christian or a child of God or not. Like really bad things happen to good people. And that's what he's saying here. You can't just look at somebody and say, oh, that's a child of God. Because look at how great their life's going. It's not true. All kinds of Christians suffer. Many hard trials hit God's people. Christians aren't free from death and tragedy and cancer and pain. We've just seen that with our precious Golly family. And with these words, Solomon is attacking a very popular notion in the church today. In fact, some just silly, just silly teaching out there. I mean, these words fly right in the face of prosperity preachers who say that if you just follow Jesus, man, all all these good things are going to happen to you, right? Like your borders are going to be expanded, man. You just pray that prayer, Jabez, because man, your borders are going to be expanded. Your territory is going to become larger. You're going to get rich. You're going to have all this great stuff. Now, I have a lot of problems with that. And and Psalm has problems with it, but the biggest problem I have with it is the Bible. That's the problem with it, okay? Because now let's just let's just reason with reason with me for a second, okay? John the Baptist got his head cut off, okay, and for what? For doing what God asked him to do. Decapitation. Um, and you think about the rest of the Bible. I mean, the message of the Bible is not that if you're good then life will be comfortable for you. The message of the Bible is that God is enough no matter the circumstance. The issue is not that God is trying to make you comfortable. The issue is that God is trying to show you that he is awesome no matter what. God is all about his glory. That's the issue. And if we don't acknowledge that, if we start making promises to people that God's going to do this for you and that for you, then we're going to lie to people. The testimony of Scripture is clear. Jeremiah, think about it, gets beaten up and thrown into a ditch naked. Moses never sees the promised land. And Job lost all of his possessions and all of his sons and daughters. And we've already mentioned John the Baptist, and we could go on and on and on with examples. Suffering and pain affect both the Christian and the non-Christian. What will happen to us tomorrow is totally uncertain. There is one event in life, though, that is certain for all of us you know what it is it's death death so this leads us to Solomon's third bit of advice for dealing with this issue of righteousness and suffering and the wicked prospering and it's this it's remember that death is the great leveler verses 2 and 3 he says this it's the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked we all have the same end folks Okay, whether you're um, like a really sick uh, criminal, or whether you're man, you're a God-fearing child of God, you're gonna die. He's gonna die. Everybody is gonna flat out just die. <laughs> Same in for all of us. And, and that's what he's saying. It's a great leveler. The righteous and the wicked both die. Death is absolutely universal. In fact, Solomon makes a series of comparisons here. He says, all men will die. Death is no respecter of persons. Whether you're good or a sinner. Whether you're righteous or a wicked. Look at verses 2 and 3. Whether you're clean or unclean. Death comes to all. Whether you practice the sacrificial system in the Old Testament or not. Death comes to all. Whether you make an oath or you're not one who makes an oath. Death will come to all. The truth is, think about it, we're closer to death right now than we were when we first walked in here. And death is the evidence that something has gone cataclysmically wrong with the universe. I mean, whether you're an atheist or whether you believe in... Let's just stop. Let's act like we're not in church for a second. Alright, we're in a club. This is a club, social club. I'm not a pastor. This isn't church. Alright, let's just reason as, just act like we're secular people for a second. Okay, let's talk about death and we're talking about it and let's think about it this way. Um, Whether you're an atheist in here or whether you believe in karma or yin-yang or whatever your deal is. Everybody believes in death. Death is a universal principle. Everyone will die and the universe says so. The universe acts like that. The universe says you deserve to die. That's the universe's position on you. Whether you're whether you're secular or not, okay, all right, back to church. Here's the thing: statistic. The statistics on death is this: one out of one people die. Now you think about this; you would think that would sober us. You would think we would stop and say, "Okay, well, I mean, whoa, I've I've been going to funerals that that kind of that should shake me up. I should be thinking that every time I go into a funeral, I'm next." But for some reason, we're out of touch with the reality of death. And Solomon says, verse 3, that if you're out of touch with the reality of death, you're spiritually insane. He uses the word mad. It's madness. It's insanity. But think about this. All that spiritual insanity comes to a screeching halt. When a man's heart stops and he stands before the creator. There will be no more insanity then. It'll be crystal clear. Instead of preparing for death, friends, we should not... Instead, instead of preparing for death, here's what happened. We tend to suppress death's reality. That's what we do. We don't want to think about it. But in the words of one bumper sticker, got to love bumper stickers. One bumper sticker, eat well, stay fit, and die anyway. It's true. You could be a... Man, you could be really... P90X... You're dead next week. That's life. It's what happens. This leads to Psalm's fourth bit of advice, and it's this. Life is better than death. So seize the opportunity. That's verses four through six. Um, here, here's another one of these carpe diem moments, you know, seize the day moments. In Ecclesiastes, they come up various times. Verse four says, he who is joined with the living has hope. You see that word? Hope. Sees the opportunity. Hope. Hope for what? What's he talking about? We you mean? You're alive. Great. Like, that's good news. We know that. It's obvious. But, but what's the attachment of hope to being alive? What's he talking about? Solomon has a tendency for stating the obvious. And here it comes. Bottom line is this. Life is to be preferred over death. Now, it's interesting because Paul actually says, for, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. So, they're not really contradictory. It's just that Solomon's making a different point. Solomon's point is like, if you're dead, you can't do anything. If you're alive, you got chance, you got opportunity, you got hope, you can do something with your life yet. So despite the evil and injustice of the world, life is to be preferred over death. And to drive this point home, Solomon gives us a great turn of phrase. He says a living dog is better than a dead lion. That's a a nice little quip. What's he talking about? A living, living dog. The, the lion was, a dog was, first of all, a dog was hated in ancient Near Eastern culture. A dog was despised. A dog was considered, you know, just kind of crummy, just dirty thing. But a lion, man, a lion was a beast. A lion was to be admired. It was strong and fierce and noble. The lion is greater by anyone's standard. But, but listen, the situation changes if the lion's dead, doesn't it? If the lion's dead, then what's the point? See, Solomon is committed to the fundamental principle of breathing. If you're breathing, that's better. That's good. It's better to be a dog and breathing than to be the king of a jungle and be laying as a dead carcass. What Solomon is simply saying is that there's an advantage to life. And the reason for this is found in verse 5. And it's kind of surprising. What's the reason why life is better than death? Here it is. For the living know that they will die. Now that seems like a strange advantage. What's the, how is that an advantage to know that you're going to die? Okay. He's already said you're spiritually insane if you don't know that. If you don't reckon with that. So how is it an advantage to know that you're going to die? Well, Dwayne Garrett puts it this way. He says, the living still have time to consider the reality of death. And in so doing, embrace the joy life has to offer... But no such possibility exists for those who have died. Their time has passed. In other words, if you're still living, you have opportunity to get right with God and enjoy life. And notice the order of that. We get this backward. We want to enjoy life and get right with God later. But the issue is get right with God now and you'll start enjoying life for the first time. So, I just want to share with you, if you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian... I just want to tell you as strongly as I know how if you want to start enjoying life like never before you've got to get a relationship with God you have that you're going to start living you're going to come out of your skin you're going to be just thrilled with grace with what God has done for you for the first time you won't be able to contain yourself you'll be like that that kooky Christian you've always hated that runs around everywhere telling everybody how awesome Jesus is I don't want to be that no, you do. You do, trust me. You won't always stay like that. But you will be excited because you'll know that, man, the God who created the universe loves me. And I have a relationship with him. But don't, don't get this backwards. Don't try to live now and get right with God later. That's so dangerous. Get right with God right now. I want somebody to come up after church and just say, I'm, I'm signing up for that. I want to get right with God today. Let's take care of that. Friends, there is no sense trying to employ euphemisms to take the sting out of death. There is no wisdom in trying to minimize the finality of death. Solomon would not allow us to escape the reality that death comes to everyone. This is what death does. It neutralizes everything. Now, this raises an interesting question. Uh, If death is inevitable, what makes life worth living? See, for the Christian, we can conclude that that it's possible to both face the reality of death on the one hand, and to enjoy life at the same time. Death does not rob us from enjoying life, does it? I mean, I, I still enjoy my life, and I know death is coming. For us, there is no ultimate fear in death, and life is worth living. But listen, if God doesn't exist, all right, and life is meaningless, what is the point of living, this question led the French atheistic existentialist philosopher Jean Paul Sartre to say the only reasonable thing to do since there is no God is to commit suicide. At least he's honest. How sad though. You see, Solomon will not be duped into such thinking, nor should we conclude that life is not enjoyable or worth living just because death approaches. Solomon wants us to live and to live well before we die. And that leads us to his final piece of advice for us, how to deal with the obvious injustice of the world. You ready for this? Here it is. Enjoy the life God has given you. Just enjoy your life. Okay, stop worrying about... The other things, acknowledge that you will never be able to understand God's ways. Here's a summary. Rest in the fact that God is in control. Realize that death is the great leveler. Remember that life is better than death. And then after you've done all of that, then learn how to start enjoying the good gifts that God has given you. In verse 15, I skipped that up front because it's intimately linked with verses 7 through 10 in chapter 9. In verse 15 and 7 through 10 of chapter 9, Solomon encourages us to enjoy this phenomenal gift of life. In fact, he wants us to live so well that we put death to shame. That we embarrass death. I find this fascinating. Solomon says, the way to rob death of its threats is to enjoy good food and good drink with good friends. You mock death when you do that. And when you do that with a good conscience. The way to rob death of its bullish intimidation is to love your wife and work hard and be happy in God. Psalm 104 says, From the cattle of the field to the grains of the field, to the wine in the vineyard, all was given to make the heart of man merry. God wants us to enjoy life. He does. Now, that may not sound spiritual, but it's true, and it is spiritual. And in these closing verses, Solomon gives us three ways to do that. The first is found in verse 7 and it's gospel rich. He says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of what you do. The first way to enjoy life, here it is, You ready? Celebrate. Celebrate. I love this. The Bible just told us that good food... Think about this, and good wine is to be enjoyed with good friends because that's how we practice for heaven. It's like a rehearsal. Just start the party now because we're going to get there someday and let's get the appetizers going. Let's start warming up because someday we're going to party forever. And I don't mean to be trivial, I, I'm just being honest. Like when we're, when we're on the new earth, it is going to be one incessant party because we'll be free from sin and pain and suffering and everything else it's going to be unreal so let's go ahead and get that practice started now uh, and is saying you want to live a deep and significant life you, you, you want that then hear me McDonald's on the way home from work as your dinner is not the idea now that sounds kind of funny it sounds kind of silly but I'm kind of making a point here That's not his idea of go eat your food and drink your wine. Grab a Big Mac on the way home and sort of just kind of cram down your dinner. According to scripture, dinner is this incredible place where we should take time. We should be deep. We should laugh. We should chew our food well and be grateful. We should drink our wine slowly and swirl it around in the cup and smell it. We should... We should be thankful. Friends should be invited over to our house. We should be invited over to other friends' house. Now listen, God has allotted to each of us a portion. So we should be content with what we have. For some of you, good food is a medium rare filet with a bottle of wine, with some bread and all the trimmings, some bananas foster for dessert, some creme brulee and a cup of coffee. For other people, man, your idea of a good meal is hamburger and macaroni mixed together. Man, and some strawberry Kool-Aid on the side. And a popsicle or an ice cream sandwich to top it off. Everybody's got his own deal. Maybe a Twinkie. I think those are back in business, aren't they? So Solomon, listen, Solomon isn't talking plush The idea isn't expensive. You work within the boundaries of what God has given you, but within those bounds, find what you like and delight in it. And listen, do that often. Do it well. It's God's gift to you. Enjoy the portion that you have. Enjoy your friends and family. Don't be thinking about tomorrow. Just be be all in for today. What you're doing right now. Be all there. If you want to enjoy life, Solomon says it starts at your dinner table. Now, You know, it's interesting that in our society, we've gotten away from this. It's like we don't eat together anymore. I I mean, families just don't do that anymore. Some families do. I'm privileged to to, to often to visit with certain families. Uh, Some families set a really good example, man, we just have dinner every night together. If you're doing that, awesome, keep doing that. If you're not doing that, consider doing that. Uh, The Barclays have modeled that so well. I've been at their house so many times. And had breakfast with them. I've had lunch with them. I've had dinner with them. And they just eat uniformly. They eat together. And it's awesome. It's just awesome. Like We need to do more of that. Um, and so it, we've gotten away from this as a culture. But isn't verse 7 here of an oh, just interesting reflection on the character of God? Think about this for a second. God is not some cosmic bully sitting in heaven sort of rubbing his hands together. Just waiting for you to mess up so he can whack you down. God is lavish. His heart is big. He's overflowing with love toward you. God says you want depth and significance and meaning, then go home and have dinner and eat it slow and laugh with your family and enjoy life. That's what he's saying. Some of us need to work less. Go home early. Just head home if you can, if you can, especially if you're your own boss. We must not live to work. We work because we have to live. Those are two very different things. Some of us need to stop working like it depends on us and start resting and celebrating because in reality it depends on God. Push pause on the rat race of life. Stop and enjoy your friends and family and do this as a habit. Because listen, that's spiritual. That's godly. That's pleasing to God and it's also helpful to everyone involved because a happy heart is good for a man a happy heart's good for a marriage isn't it a happy heart is good for the kids a happy heart is good for the church it's just good now I love the reasoning of verse 7 you think that's so unspiritual just sounds like oh you know it's just something about that just grates me sounds so superficial and shallow it's not look at the reasoning in verse 7 Solomon says you can celebrate that way because God has already approved of what you do Anybody see some gospel foreshadowing here? I mean, hear me. Let me just tell you this. No scripture can be read in its fullness without being read in the confines of the larger story of scripture. Which centers on Jesus and the cross of Christ. So, I think you have some foreshadowing here. When Solomon says, God has already approved of what you do. Because the righteousness of Jesus has been placed on your account you are accepted with God, so you don't come to the dinner table guilty. Okay? You, you don't. You don't come to the dinner table with kind of a woe is me heart. We come celebrating the fact that the blood of Jesus has made it possible for us to enjoy life. Our sins have been fa- paid for, so let's act like it. That's what he's saying. So, now... Quickly here, verse 8, the wearing of white clothes and the anointing of the head with oil is symbolic of joy. Uh, the point of those verses is to make a, a strong contrast between wearing sackcloth and ashes as a sign of mourning. Okay? It's the exact opposite. All right, so Solomon is saying, let your celebration and enjoyment of life be visible to others. Put the white garment on. Put the oil on your head. Celebrate. Let others see that. See, some, some of us tend to give off um, a kind of a woe-is-me vibe, all right? And right? We've, we've all been guilty of that. You know, it's like life is just stinks all the time. Life is miserable, you know, and you just give that vibe off. Like, wh- man, my life stinks. But listen, people shouldn't always see you giving off that vibe. People need to see you put on the white robe anoint your head with oil, and celebrate. Nobody has an excuse not to do that in this room, if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you do not live, you cannot live functionally like woe is me, because you're in Christ. You should be saying, praise God that I'm free in Christ. You, you can be transformed from a woe is me heart and vibe to, my life stinks, it's so hard, it's so bad to, I'm here to serve and pour my life away and give it for other people because Jesus saved me, redeemed me, and washed me and made me new. So, and don't you just love being around people that enjoy life? But here's the thing, let's be those people. Let's not just say, I'm so encouraged being around that young couple, they just really love to have a happy life. Be that young couple. Be, be that older couple that's just on, that just is enjoying life. So that's what is getting at here. Alright, so celebrate. Number two, and this is huge. If you want to enjoy your life, here it is. Verse 9, enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your spouse. Solomon says, Enjoy life with the wife with whom you love all the days of your life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now I want to show you something interesting about this verse. It's not a direct connection, but there is a conceptual connection here. Solomon is attaching this idea of having a spouse or being married, not only with a concept of enjoyment, but with a concept of work and toil and labor. He uses it twice in this verse. Now, he didn't use the word in verses 7 and 8. It's not like Solomon said, hey, you know, like when you eat good food, like go do that, eat good food. But just remember, there's going to be a lot of toil involved. You're going to have to cook and you're going to have to clean and you're going to have to do a lot of work. He didn't say that. Or he didn't say, for example, hey, you know, like dress up and wear the white garment, but just remember it's just going to be a lot of work. You've got to shop for that thing and you've got to find the right one. It's going to be really expensive. But when he gets to verse 9, he says, enjoy your wife. There's going to be some work. There's going to be some work involved. Enjoy your spouse. So let's just chat about this for a second. I mean, I have found in my own marriage that spiritual and emotional intimacy does not come easy. It, it's just, it doesn't. I mean, it has to be worked at. Everything else seems to come easy for me and, and, and in our marriage. But getting to the core of who Tina is and her getting to the core of who I am, that takes work. I mean, we have to die ourselves every day, every minute for that to even be possible it just takes work and it takes time there's no fast food approach to emotional intimacy I mean, and, and Tina and I have had our days of, of toil we have there, there are some days that we're more like two pieces of sandpaper rubbing on each other right than two peas in a pod and that's what happens and, but, but listen when two lives collide and iron is banging into iron that's meant to have a sharpening effect and a good marriage, one that's enjoyable, it takes work. So I, I'm really motivated by these words of Solomon because I want to get after it. I want to start working. I want to work harder. I want to. I want to be. I don't want to be two pieces of sandpaper making each other dull. I want to be two pieces of iron making each other sharper. And I'm motivated by this. I'm motivated by by the words he says. Enjoy life with your spouse. Like just start doing that. Start enjoying life with him or her. This is your portion. God is saying it's your gift. It's one of the things, the ultimate point here is that life is toil. Life is hard. Life is work. So like I've given you a wife or a husband in the case of you ladies so that you can enjoy life. Don't just work yourself like a dog. Don't just work yourself to to the bone. Stop and remember I got a wife. I got a husband. I got kids. Praise God. And enjoy that. Now, I just need to be really honest with you. You can't enjoy someone if you're not around them. I mean, let's, let's talk here. You can't, neither can you, a person feel enjoyed if they're not pursued. And I just ask myself this question. I mean, I wonder how much better would our marriages be in this room this morning if we would take the same energy and vitality and creativity and time that we spend on so many other things and pour that into our spouse. Or let's talk really straight for a second. Solomon says, enjoy your wife. See, she is your portion. Not someone else's spouse. That should be obvious, but it has to be said in this culture. And this gets real because... You cannot enjoy the husband or wife that God has given you if you are living in a fantasy world. Now, I'm not just talking about pornography. I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about any form of escapism from reality. The reason is that you'll be living in some world that's outside of your home and you cannot enjoy being where you are if your head is in some other game. Your head, you've got to be there. You cannot enjoy the spouse God has given to you if you're spending your vitality on someone else or something else. And for some in here, this is a pressing issue because some of you are still under the delusion that the grass is greener in that other pasture. Man, if I could just run in that pasture, you know? Man, if I could just get over there. You know what I think Solomon would say to you? First of all, the grass isn't greener over there. But listen, I think what he'd say to you is, even if it was, it wouldn't be for long, because as soon as you got over there to that pasture, you jacked jack that grass up to you. You would. You'd deaden that grass so fast. You'd brown that grass so fast. Oh, that's a hard-hitting stuff. And this gets, really, this gets, it gets real. It gets real to us. I mean, let me ask you this. Was your spouse not at one time lush green grass? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. You happened to it. You happened to it. You did it. You happened to you. Own your part. Okay? You say, well, I mean, it was, I mean, gee, but I mean, you know. Yeah, that's true. But own your part. Own your part. No matter how big or small your part was, you happened to that grass. Don't think that it'll be really great to go run in someone else's prairie. If the grass looks good over there, It's not going to be for long because don't just go and destroy. You've destroyed one field. Don't pick it up and go over the other side of the fence and destroy that too. Don't, Don't leave a path of destruction. Because you know what's common to both fields? You. You're common to both sides that side of the pasture and this side. And that's the problem. Solomon says, enjoy your wife, not someone else's. But don't miss this, okay? Enjoy her. There's a positive side. Enjoy her. She's to be enjoyed, not just lived with. She's to be cherished, not just put up with. She's to be valued, not simply looked after. Or, sorry, he's to be valued, not simply looked after. Not simply cooked for or cleaned up after. He's to be valued. He's to be respected, not just tolerated. Let's enjoy our spouses. But listen, if we're going to do that, we have to be where we are. And wherever you are, be all there. Be all in. Don't be half in. I'm preaching to myself. I, Tina will be the first one to tell you I work way too many hours. And guess who feels the brunt of that? Judah, Arian, and mostly my wife. Okay, I, I, I ask me that. We all do that. Ask me as your pastor, hey, are you valuing Tom with your family? Are you setting that aside? Pastor, are you, what have you planned on your calendar to celebrate life with your kids and your wife? Can we ask each other that question? Kim and Keith Withrow are going to start a marriage class here. Okay, That's coming real soon. We want some couples to get involved in that. We want to start building a trajectory of really healthy marriages in our church. If you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I'm defeated. I feel like I've blown it. Guess what? Join that club. Okay? A lot of us have blown it. A lot of us have not loved our wives and kids like we should. Okay? Nobody, I'm not ever going to pretend to you guys that I've got it figured out with marriage and parenting and stuff. Okay? I'm not going to pretend that, but I'm going to preach to you this, that God is good and marriage is a gift and our kids are a gift and family is a gift and we can do this together. Okay? Okay? So let's get after it together. Will it require some work? Absolutely. But listen, there are few things in life that are beautiful that don't cost something. If you want to go to the beach and sit there with a cold drink in your hand and take in a sunset, you're going to have to drive a long way. There's always a cost involved. And so I just think about this. If we pour our hearts into our marriages, who knows how beautiful they will become. So let's celebrate, let's enjoy our spouse. And finally verse 10 is where we end. This is the last little piece. I'm just going to give you three sentences on it, okay? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You know what that is? That's the Bible pleading with you and me to be a good worker. Go to work every day and see what you are capable of because there's something that happens when you step away from a productive Day from a productive day, and you look and you see what your hands have done. Isn't there something there? You see that there's a reward and pleasure in knowing that we've worked hard, that we've accomplished something, that we built something. Friends, be a contributor, be a creator, be a giver. Work hard and do something significant with your life. Grab your crew and your clan and your family, and let's say, let's build something great together. Work hard. And when it's all said and done, you can step back and you can enjoy the work of your hands. Solomon's saying that's one of the ways you enjoy life. Okay? So here it is: big 30,000-foot view where. We're, we're flying over. Here's the review. Okay, there it is. Solomon's recipe for dealing with the injustice and pain and suffering of this life. Here it is. We live in a jacked up society. We live in a world where the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. But instead of letting that injustice ruin our lives and drive us into despair, Solomon gives us a plan for how to respond. And here it was. It was very simple. Acknowledge, number one, that you will never understand God's ways. Number two, rest in the fact that God is thoroughly in control Number three, realize that death is the great leveler. Number four, remember that life is better than death. You have an opportunity, so carpe diem, seize the moment. And number five, learn how to start enjoying the good gifts that God has given you. Celebrate life, enjoy your marriage, and work hard for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. And the correction that it is to us. Motivate us this morning. Give us your spirit. And change us we pray. In Christ's
0: name. Amen.